This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. The House of Representatives passes a tax cut for big business while expanding the child tax credit and more Republicans vote against it than Democrats. Is this good policy and will it pass the Senate? Plus, the Senate border security talks continue behind the scenes, but may end up coming to naught. Where does that leave the border debate and funding for Ukraine? Welcome. I'm Paul Jago with the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages here on our Potomac Watch podcast. And I'm here with my colleagues, Kim Strassel and Kate Batchelder odell So the tax bill that was negotiated between Democrat Ron Wyden, who runs the Senate Finance Committee, and Jason Smith, who runs the House Ways and Means Committee and is a Republican, went to the House last night. That was Wednesday night and passed with a vote of 357 to 70. Interestingly, 188 Democrats voted for it, 23 against but 169 Republicans voted for it and 47 Republicans opposed. So despite the fact that Republicans control the House of Representatives, Speaker of the House Mike Johnson introduced a bill that more Democrats like than Republicans. And not only that, but a tax bill, which is supposed to be, of course, the thing that at least Republicans are most unified on. Kate, why don't you tell us what's in this tax bill? Well, I mean, Paul, one of the narratives we've been hearing over the past 12 hours is that this is a rare breakthrough of bipartisanship. But is there any older story in the book than Congress spending a bunch of money and doing some temporary tax extender stops? Um, I think not. In other words, this isn't a tremendous political breakthrough. <laughs> yes, no, it's just, uh, like I said, backing up the spending truck. What's in the bill is what Republicans wanted were some provisions from the 2017 tax cuts, bonus depreciation for equipment, some changes to the way companies deduct our research and development expenses. And then what they traded for it with Democrats was a blowout in the child tax credit and some changes to the way that it's administered by basically allowing, for instance, if you claim it, you can use your earnings from last year to calculate your credit for this year. So that weakens the credits connection with work and upward mobility. So it'll be an expensive tax bill for not very many substantive, no, really a very small growth effect, if any, over the long haul because it's temporary, but a huge price tag. Yeah, the price tag formally cited by the Joint Tax Committee, which measures these things for Congress, is $78 billion. But because of the way it's structured, that Dan Clifton of Strategus Research Partners figures that in the first two years alone, it's actually going to be a tax cut upwards of $200 billion, in part because it is going to allow the uh, Internal Revenue Service to start making payments again for the employee retention credit, which is really a boondoggle for the ages coming out of the uh, COVID pandemic, which allows companies to claim credit for keeping employees on the payroll. Even if they did this years ago during the pandemic, they can still claim it. And there are upwards of $244 billion of unclaimed ERC credits. So 
Kim, this looks like, despite all the anxiety expressed by Republicans about the deficit, this looks like it's going to add to the deficit. Well, and by the way, Paul, just a funny side note on that employee retention credit. (laughs) They actually, in Congress's classic gimmicky way, suggested that, well, yeah, you know, you can use this program. We're going to start paying this out um, again. We've got new provisions to crack down on fraud. And so actually, it might even save us money in the end, which is just such a classic Congress line. I mean, the thing that strikes me when I look at this is it's just like everything that happened under Nancy Pelosi. I mean, why even bother changing parties? This is entirely in line with the semiconductor welfare bill, with the infrastructure bill that we saw come out, with the Inflation Reduction Act. And some of these had bipartisan majorities too, because it turns out that about the only thing that this Congress can ever pass anymore is spending. They can lock arms and do it. They can claim they're both getting their own priorities, but it's the only thing that they seem to be able to get past their rancor and get over the finish line. And this to me looks no different than anything else, it's going to raise the deficit. But it's also just terrible policy. And more importantly, it's the hook. Democrats want to continue to grow that child tax credit and to make it ever more refundable, turning it into a a permanent welfare feature. Refundable refers to the provision that says that you can get the tax credit even if you have no tax liability so that, in essence, it becomes a welfare check, right? The government sends you a check, yeah, for not working. So that's what refundable means. Let's listen to the House Ways and Means Chairman, Jason Smith. He's chairman for the first time in this Congress. And uh, I have to say it shows. Let's listen to him on CNBC. Trump's tax cuts in 2017 increased the refundability to $1,400 indexed to inflation. It is currently, as we stand, $1,700. It's not $1,600. It's $1,700. This bill increases its $100 every year over the next three years, just like what Trump's tax package did as well. Of course, the Wall Street Journal is not going to be favorable because this tax policy is focused on working families, small businesses, and Main Street, not Wall Street. Um, The Ways and Means chairman there taking us to task for editorials, pointing out that the child tax credit isn't exactly what he says it is. And I have to say, it's amusing. He claims we don't like this because it helps working families. Actually, It's more help for people who don't work. That's our objection to it. It hurts work, number one. And number two, this is a big business bill, Kate. I mean, that's what this is. The Republicans are doing this mainly because the business lobbies are all for it. It does take some chutzpah to accuse somebody else of being a shill for Wall Street when you're blowing through a expansion of the net interest deduction. For corporate America. And I was going to go into some detail on that very briefly, but I think it's important because in the 2017 tax reform, there was a discussion and a fight over how companies could calculate their net interest for deduction. And the forces of good argued for this tighter calculation because it would keep the code from subsidizing debt financing over equity. And so now basically what the House is doing is undoing that pro-growth reform that Congress used to help pay for the Trump tax cuts. So this is not even a pro-growth good provision. It's an undoing of 2017. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little more about this uh, tax bill and its prospects in the Senate. And where does the debate negotiation stand on Ukraine and border security when we come back? This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. 
journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Welcome back. I'm Paul Gigo with The Wall Street Journal with uh, Kim Strassel and Kate O'Dell. Let's uh, look forward on the tax bill to the Senate and what are the prospects there. Clearly, the Democrats really want this. Ron Wyden, the head of the Finance Committee, negotiated it. The Democrats seem enthused. The president and the White House have endorsed it. So this will hang, Kim, on whether or not Republican senators can hang together and oppose it or, well, they'll just say, well, it's an election year and I'll let the tax benefits roll. So far, there does seem to be some pushback and from some important voices in the caucus and for a medley of reasons. They're not necessarily all united on why they disapprove of this bill, but that might not matter in the end if there is enough of them to, in essence, block it or get the momentum to block it overall. Some people obviously don't like the watering down of some of these provisions like Kate was mentioning because they remember that fight that happened in particular in the Senate to try to tighten up that interest deduction provision. Some of them obviously understand our point about this becoming a welfare bill and a permanent welfare feature of our system. And then you've got a couple of people that I think in their heart of hearts would actually like the whole thing to be even bigger. And they're grumpy for that reason. Will that keep them from voting for it? Possibly not. All of this, meanwhile, gets thrown into the fray of the big discussion about conflicting priorities here. Let's not forget that we are talking about doing this enormous new handout at a time when Congress is pleading poverty and claiming they don't have the money to fund our allies in these world conflicts like Ukraine. And that seems to be an argument that's picking up a little traction, too. Kate, just to broaden this out a bit, in 2017, Republicans passed a tax reform that they called a generational achievement. And in many ways, it was. Fixed the corporate code in particular. The individual side wasn't as good. But they fixed the corporate side pretty well. And they did it in narrowing loopholes like the interest deduction benefit for interest over equity and other loopholes. And yet now they are busy pairing that back. And it leads me to wonder, what do Republicans stand for anymore? There seems to be an enormous amount of intellectual confusion in the Republican Party now across all kinds of things that they used to believe, from foreign policy to tax policy to social welfare policy. Well, there is a split. There are some Republican outside groups supporting this, and they tend to lean pretty hard on bonus depreciation as worth the entire price tag of the rest of the package. But I'm really concerned about you have some Republicans here that are defending this expansion of the refundable child tax credit as a good cultural priority. For example, there's a provision in the bill that would basically really juice up the credits at the lower ends of the income scale for families with multiple children. And this is being pitched as just, oh, we're just correcting a tax bias against large families. But what it really does is phase in and what that means is just give these checks at lower levels of income and lower levels of work. And it changes the way that the credit works. And it basically means you'll get your full check faster. And so you won't have the incentive to work an extra hour. You won't have the incentive to take a job that pays $3 more per hour. And what we really supposedly want, or what I thought Republicans wanted, was to use these social safety programs to the extent they exist and to help people get out of poverty and be upwardly mobile. And we're now reverting to these social programs as just a simply, let's send a 
check and declare victory. And I think that is just a real depressing development. Yeah, it also plays into democratic policy and political hands, I should say, which is one of the reasons I think that Democrats are smiling throughout this whole process, because their goal with the child tax credit is to make that into essentially a universal basic income for all Americans. And this is something of a down payment on that. Now, Republicans have already gone a large part of that way in the past, but at least when they did that, they would say, well, we need it to get what we want on tax policy. In this case, they're actually defending the credit and defending the incentives for not working, which is very destructive. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the border security negotiations. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker, play the opinion Potomac Watch podcast. That is, play the opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. I'm Paul Gigo with Kate O'Dell and Kim Strassel. The Senate is negotiating, has been for some time now, weeks really, a uh, border security bill, really would be the most restrictive border security bill in decades. That would be part of a bill for military aid to Ukraine and Israel and some parts of the Pacific. But the longer this takes, the less likely it seems. And now Republicans are standing up all over the place, particularly Mike Johnson, Speaker of the House, who calls the bill he hasn't even seen yet dead on arrival in the House. And Donald Trump says, don't pass it. Bad bill is worse than no bill, even though we don't know that it's good or a bad bill since we haven't seen it. So, Kim, this looks like it's headed down. Yeah, we've gone from bad to worse on this. And in part, exactly because you said nobody's waiting to see what the product is. At first, Speaker Johnson and a number of members in the House were simply staking their flag, saying we want the entirety of our own border security bill that we passed last year to be accepted in its entirety in this bill. And we won't accept anything less than that. But they left it open to at least to see what's going to come out. Now you have for Senator James Langford, who is the Republican in the Senate negotiating this. He's been working on this for weeks. Apparently, they have made some really major breakthroughs on issues like the language of asylum, the standard that is that people would need to hit to come in, parole and the president's ability to use that, i.e. to wave through entire classes of people and grant them temporary status here, the dollars that are going to go down to the border and what precisely they would be used for security rather than the processing of more and more people. And all of this, I should note, is miles away from what anything the Democratic side was talking about even two months ago. And it's the reflection of just how big a political liability the border has become. They are on the run. They are vulnerable. They are essentially giving Republicans much of what they want. And yet 
thanks to Donald Trump and some of this rabble rousing on the right, the new rallying cry is nothing will be good enough. Even that thing that we've not seen, it'll never hit our standards and they're foreclosing the possibility of getting what could be a very big win here. Let's listen to Senator James Lankford, who's the chief Republican negotiator, talking about the change in a Republican point of view, not himself, but other Republicans over this. Republicans four months ago would not give funding for Ukraine, for Israel, and for our southern border because we demanded changes in policy. So we actually locked arms together and said, we're not going to give you money for this. We want a change in law. And now it's interesting, a few months later, when we're finally getting to the end, they're like, oh, just kidding. I actually don't want a change in law because it's a presidential election year. We all have an oath to the Constitution, and we have a commitment to say we're going to do whatever we can to be able to secure the border. Well, there you have it. James Langford, who, by the way, is a very conservative member, now being portrayed as a sellout and a rhino for negotiating at all on this when, in fact, that was the request of Republicans because they feared back in the autumn that even if they supported Ukraine aid, there would be a difficult vote because some elements of the party oppose it. So, aha, we'll put some border security elements on it. And because the politics of immigration and border security have moved so much in their direction that they are getting, I think, even more policy than they ever anticipated. And yet now, Kate, the bulk of the, uh, well, the bulk of the House for sure and more and more senators, and of course, Donald Trump say, don't do it because I guess that they fear this would help Joe Biden. So the argument is, let's not solve the problem for several more months because somehow Joe Biden might get credit for it. Couldn't you just say maybe we get credit for forcing him to sign it? (laughs) Well, yeah. And keep in mind, the term rhino now is being wielded by people who hold democratic views on foreign policy, on economics, on spending. Um, I could go on. But I do think another factor here is, well, what happens if the border deal collapses? And the question is, we have money for Ukraine. Lisa Lade go through the Senate. And I think the answer is eventually you will get 60 votes in the Senate to help Ukraine because the core of the GOP conference understands the stakes in Ukraine and that we should help them. Then, let's play this out a little bit, you would have tremendous pressure on the House to have a vote or essentially just leave Ukraine hanging. The politics of this are terrible for Republicans if they dump a border deal. They have this rare opening where they don't have to make a concession on immigration, like a legal pathway to citizenship that is not popular with the Republican base. All they have to do is give money to Ukraine that about 60% of them support anyway. So do not ask me what the strategy here is, because I think it is not particularly well thought out. It's a very important point you make here about the trade-offs, because typically when Republicans have entered these negotiations over immigration policy, it has been, we'll trade border security provisions for some kind of legalization whether it be the so-called dreamers, people brought here as young people illegally who are now adults, or whether it be some other provision that legalizes big chunks of people who are here illegally. And this one, that's off the table. Those are off the table. What we're talking about here are a whole variety of provisions that would just tighten the standards for and the process for border enforcement. And Kim, if they don't get this, Let's say they say, sorry, we're not going to take yes for an answer. We'll get better when the next election happens. Donald Trump will be president and we'll get what we want. My own view on this is that 
there is not a chance that the Democrats will give a Donald Trump presidency the 60 votes he needs in the Senate to pass these kinds of provisions, certainly not without major concessions that involve legalization. Yeah. What did Hillary Clinton say once? The willing suspension of disbelief. I mean, (laughs) this is it's never going to happen. And I think Donald Trump is making mistake in pushing against this, too, and not thinking about the situation he may inherit when he takes over the White House. He is going to own it. At that point, the border will still be broken. It'll be on him to do something. The situation down there is now so bad that many of the executive tools he used the first time around are not going to be enough, and some of them may not be available to him. For instance, it's unclear that the Mexican government will ever agree to a sort of Remain in Mexico program, at least not of the type and size that would be necessary to deal with this problem. He's going to need some help from Congress. Yet at that point, Democrats will have a twofold interest in not helping him. One, they'd like to see him fail. They'd like to be able to say, look, you know, Donald Trump isn't able to handle this any better than Joe Biden was. And because they don't want, in essence, to actually see border controls and that at least a progressive faction of the Democratic Party likes an open border. So it will have no incentive. He will not have 60 Senate votes to do anything like what people are talking about today. All right. We shall see where this goes. But it looks like the uh, border security negotiations are on life support. Even if we get legislation drafted coming out of the Senate, we'll see what happens. And then we go to this uh, high stakes vote, we hope, on Ukraine. All right. Thanks, uh, Kim. Thanks, Kate. Thank you all for listening. We're here every day on Potomac Watch, and we're really glad to have you with us. I hope you'll be with us tomorrow. Thanks for listening.